Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Neil Ferguson joining us now from our bureau in London. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution with appointments at Harvard and Tsinghua University and at SAIS in Washington as well. He's the author, as I mentioned, of The Square and the Tower Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. And let's get this out of the way first here, Neil. Uh, our colleagues in London, lucky to be able to get their hands on this book early. It comes out here in January? That's right. Very yeah, good. We, right. We're, we're, we're starting in London and uh, and moving to, to the U.S. after the holidays. Very good. Uh, thanks very much for being with us. And uh, let me start with something you've written about the uh, the tumult and the change that we've seen here over the last decade, right? In less than a decade, the public sphere and the democratic process has been revolutionized. Let's use that as a, as a jumping off point here to talk about uh, what you've observed recently and how we can extrapolate that to, to history more largely. Well, I think Many people are still struggling to grasp the magnitude of the shift in the public sphere that's occurred. A good illustration of this is the statistic that 45% of Americans today get their news from Facebook. Uh, And that means that, in effect, Facebook is the biggest publisher in American history, perhaps in world history. Two billion-plus people are monthly users at least. Most of them use it much more often than once a month. And this, in a sense, is the biggest and and fastest social network in history. We've gone from, as as a species, being roughly six degrees of separation apart. Any two individuals used to be able to connect via six steps. Uh, And on Facebook, it's now down below four Mm. degrees of separation. What this means, I think, became clear, or at least it became clear to those of us watching closely last year when the political process on both sides of the Atlantic was fundamentally disrupted uh, by these new social networks and the ways they were used by the Brexit campaign, the Trump campaign, and let's not forget Russian intelligence. And now gradually people are waking up to the fact that something really quite extraordinary happened and we are trying to work out what it signifies. How intractable are networks now? Uh, in the past, uh, you, you see lawmakers in Washington struggling with this very issue. You see executives of these companies struggling with it uh, as well. Uh, just yesterday, there was a report that the attack was uh, the attack in Las Vegas was was uh, something that was called for by or helped by uh, ISIS. Uh, that was uh, dismissed as fake news a little later in the day. How intractable are networks generally? And we still don't know if it's fake news or not. We know very little. But what we've got uh, online, uh, what we had in the wake of the hideous events in Las Vegas, was a whole bunch of fake news, fake identification of the perpetrator, Mm. uh, fake attribution of political motives, stories that popped up in Facebook and Google uh, briefly before those uh, those platforms took them down. I think lawmakers uh, and uh, chief executives in traditional companies are struggling because in many ways they embody a traditional hierarchical structure of power. If you go to Washington, D.C., you enter the realm uh, of the administrative state. It's a hierarchical structure. Up at the top is the president and the White House, and then there are all these different departments and agencies of the federal government, and then according to the Constitution, there's this thing called 
called Congress. It's a very old style uh, 18th century constitution plus 20th century uh, state structure. And people who are accustomed to what I'll call the org chart, people who think of themselves as being in an org chart, are completely thrown by the advent of distributed networks, uh, which decentralize power in many ways by creating a vast network of, of users, but in other ways concentrate power in the hands of the people who own the network platforms. This is a very new world, but, and this is a crucial point, it is not an unprecedented world. When you go to Silicon Valley, and I now live quite near there, uh, being based at Stanford, you'd think that history simply didn't apply because everything uh, that happened before, oh, I don't know, the Google IPO uh, <laughs> is kind of prehistory, the Stone Age. And, uh, and, and it's only really the last 10 or so years that count. But I've been trying to argue, and that's really the central theme of the square and the tower, that we have seen something a bit like this before. And I compare it. I compare our age with the age of the printing press when the world was transformed by a new distributed technology, printing presses, which allowed ideas, memes to go viral in a way that we're yeah. now familiar with. Okay, so we had a printing press, and that worked out for Euler and other <laughs> smart people of Europe that you've written about, Leonard Euler, the great uh, mathematician. Are we going to lose our intellectual integrity with the new networking and the new social media? Are we going to be too dumb to read Neil Ferguson's books? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I hope that people still not. read books out there. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if uh, if I'm wasting my time in an age of 140 characters. Yeah, exactly. And by the What's way, Twitter, that? increasing it to 280 characters oh, doesn't yeah. really This is scary, girl. Really Neil that Ferguson with 280 far. characters is just too much. Oh. <laughs> but I do my best using these uh, network platforms. Uh, I use uh, Twitter and Facebook to try to get the ideas out there in the hope that people will say, hmm, that's interesting. I should go read the book, uh, or at least buy the book. I mean, one, one has to be realistic in this day and age. <laughs> as long as they buy, you know, I can feed and clothe my children. So well, to, to be serious, the, the issue here, I think, is that because, by and large, computer engineers, software engineers don't read much history. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg took a history class when he was at Harvard. He certainly didn't take one of my classes. They tend to approach the problem with an excessive optimism. And their basic assumption was, if we connect everybody, everything will be awesome. And I think Mark Zuckerberg sincerely believed that. I think the founders of Google sincerely believed it. If they'd known a bit more history, I think they would have been less surprised to discover that when you connect lots of people into a giant social network, they don't just sit around merrily sharing cat videos. Uh, they can equally likely share beheading uh, videos. Uh, they can equally share complete untruths. And that the lesson of, of the period I was talking about earlier, the 16th and 17th centuries, is pretty clear. Martin Luther thought 500 years ago exactly that he was going to launch a reformation of the Roman Catholic Church that would greatly improve Western Christendom and create a kind of priesthood of all believers, St. Peter's vision, everybody reading the Bible and the vernacular, everybody having a direct relationship to God. It would all be awesome. What happened? Well, of course, there was polarization. Some people agreed with him. Others violently disagreed. And for about 130 years, Europe was torn apart 
by civil war. And not only that, but all kinds of crazy ideas went viral through the printing press, like, for example, witchcraft. Uh, and people died hideous deaths uh, in places like Salem, Massachusetts, because of a nutty idea that there were such things as witches. So I think if we all think a little bit harder about the lessons of history and, frankly, of network science, we'll be a little less amazed. I mean, I, I'm very struck by the tone of shock horror in Silicon Valley these days. It's like, gee, we never thought our platform would be used for terrible ends. We just assumed everybody was nice. Oh, come on. I mean... That's really not the lesson of history, is it? Yeah. Let me ask you, I, I know you moved from Harvard to Stanford for recently. Was, it, was this a motivating factor? You're wanting, you're wanting to engage with this story to think about these issues? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think back now 10 or more years to the time I, I came uh, to the U.S. and I was deeply interested in what was going on in Wall Street and I can remember back in 2006, seven, saying, you know, I really think there's a big financial crisis coming. That seems like the lesson of history for you guys. And people would kind of throw bread rolls at me. And it turned out to be true. The ascent of money came out. If you remember uh, 2008, just a few weeks before Lehman Brothers went belly up, I felt the same hunch about what was happening in Silicon Valley. I was encountering the same kind of hubris amongst the masters of, of big tech that I remember from Wall Street pre-crisis. So I mm. thought, you know what, I need to get a little closer to this story because this is history happening now. David Gura and Tom Keen uh, in New York, Neil Ferguson in London, we were talking about character limits, 140, 280 time limits as well. I apologize to Neil Ferguson for asking that question so close uh, to a break. I was asking him about uh, the way that Silicon Valley and his move to Stanford influenced the writing of this book. And Neil, let me let me pick it up from there and give you a chance to respond if I could. Uh, how much were you thinking about the, the software engineers we were talking about a few moments ago as you wrote this, what you'd like them to, to learn about the role of network theory and networks throughout history? Oh, a lot. And I, I was pretty busy over the last year trying to meet with people uh, and pick their brains because, after all, I don't have a computer science background. I was not only frantically reading up on network science, but also having some fascinating conversa conversations with some of the, uh, the big names uh, uh, on, uh, in Silicon Valley and also some, some of the people right at the cutting edge of things like cryptocurrency, which is as somebody said, the internet of money. And, and that new phenomenon, uh, the application of blockchain uh, to payments and all kinds of financial transactions is the, is the kind of thing that you really kind of need to go there to, to study and, and understand. Seems to me that that's a new and exciting frontier in financial history that, uh, that I, in my, my experience, many people in Wall Street don't wholly get. I mean, when I hear Jamie Dimon talking about tulip mania, that just seems to me like the wrong analogy uh -huh. for something that will be as profoundly revolutionary for finance as the internet has been for social networks uh, and all the other things that we've grown accustomed to using it for. How easily can these two things go together, hierarchy and, and networks? I, I think of the work that Stanley McChrystal, retired General Stanley McChrystal, has done bringing network theory to bear, trying to teach it to corporations, um, the, the work that he did while he was uh, in Iraq uh, leading soldiers there, uh, we talked to Anne-Marie Slaughter uh, about her recent book in which she's trying to apply this to, to any number of, of fields. Are we seeing the, the, the hierarchy, the existing power structure, embracing network theory more than it has in the past? Well, I'm a big fan of Stan McChrystal and his uh, autobiography, which includes the phrase, it takes a network to beat a network, was one of the sources of inspiration I drew on in 
writing the book because uh, network theory has uh, some very interesting antecedents in the realm of counterinsurgency. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book where I discuss the kind of the history of counterinsurgency and the realization that there were certain kinds of warfare that could only be fought with networks. There is a tension, and, and you hit on it with your question, between hierarchical structures of power, whether they're political or corporate, and distributed networks. Now, to be absolutely pedantic, a hierarchy is just a kind of network. It's a special kind of network where one or a few nodes have uh, control of the network and all communications, all flows of informational resources have to go through them. Uh, that, that means that we're really talking here about a tension between hierarchical networks and distributed ones where power is very decentralized. And I think that tension has been there throughout history because if you want to put it really crudely, hierarchical structures are good for defense. And yeah. most of the problems of history are about security. And that's why we yeah. tend through most of history to see these hierarchies emerge. Speaking of hierarchies, do you watch Game of Thrones? I have a confession to make. It will shock and disappoint you. No. Yeah. You do, you're the only one on the planet who <laughs> doesn't watch. Well, you know Game why I don't watch it? You know why I don't watch it? Because it's fake history. Uh -huh. okay. I actually prefer real history. Okay, but you know, <laughs> if I go back to you, you know, one of your great early books, The Pity of War, and you talk about the myths of militarism. I mean, to be honest, Neil, with all your different work, it's been wonderful as you question almost our mythologies. That's how I get to Game of Thrones. I, I mean, where is our mythology right now? Well, I think one mythology was the mythology of a wonderful connected world where yeah. everybody and everything would be connected and yeah. that would be awesome. And I'm the kind of spoil sport who comes along and says that's not plausible either on the basis of history or on the basis of network science, which predicts things like polarization and manias that go viral and the incredible inequalities that most social networks naturally tend to, right. to propagate. So I think that's one of those myths, a Silicon Valley myth, that we're seeing being shattered in, in real time mm. as gradually people realize that, gee, once everybody's yeah. connected, it won't be a happy, clappy, kumbaya kind of exactly. world. Exactly. I mean, happy. that could be the title of your next book, Happy, Clappy, Kumbaya. <laughs> Yeah. And well, Neil, happy, I got. Happy, I, happy, I could go for another. I, you know, I could go for another hour. <laughs> uh, this is great. We look forward to the release of uh, your new book in the United States. In January, really, yeah. Im really important to see uh, in January. Professor Ferguson at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, with a modest attachment to a small university on the Charles <laughs> River in Boston. As well, we should have talked to him about the mythology of Yankees baseball. You gonna watch tonight? I do, is there a choice? <laughs> Come on, I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> it, it, I, what I really want, folks, is to see the Red Sox and the Yankees meet for the American League pennant, which would be really the World Series. But I don't know what the odds are of that. I'm sure somebody smarter than me knows the odds of that occurring. I'm, yes, I'm rooting for Aaron Judge. I'm sorry. This is Bloomberg. David, why don't you bring in our extinguished guest here? He's Long Dollar, which is a big deal. <laughs> Very good. John Dorman joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the head of currencies, commodities, and international rates research uh, at J.P. Morgan. Great to see you uh, here in our studios in, in New York. Great to and see you guys too. Let me start. Tom mentions the interview that he has tomorrow with uh, with the vice chairman, the outgoing vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, just give us your sense of, of what you're watching here 
personnel-wise, uh, we talked a lot. We have talked a lot about who might replace Janet Yellen if the president decides to uh, pick somebody else for that position going forward. But uh, the vice chair has been a pivotal role here for this this Federal Reserve. And uh, I wonder sort of what, what you're thinking about uh, the way the configuration of this Federal Reserve uh, might change. Sure, there are a few issues. So everyone's aware that there's a lot of turnover at the Fed next year. Usually when there's turnover, the focus is on whether the incoming members will be hawks or doves. The decision is slightly more complicated this time around because you have a president who doesn't always appoint people who necessarily have the same policy expertise as some of the predecessors in those positions. And so there are questions here not only around whether the uh, new members of the committee will be hawks or doves, which is a traditional issue, but there's also the issue of whether or not there will be professional economists, people from Wall Street, business people. And depending on the answer to that, whether they favor more traditional methods of normalizing policy, lifting the policy rate, or whether they are not fans at all of the large Fed balance sheet, and so we might see some acceleration of the the roll-off. And then there's kind of a multi-year issue around how this individual uh, might handle the U.S. recession that could come in a couple of years. So there's there's a lot that this person's going to have on their plate. You know, the first issue is around rate normalization and the subsequent ones around uh, how to handle any downturn in the economy much later on. Is it your belief that um, now that the ball is rolling or about to, to get rolling uh, on normalization, that's going to continue? Momentum's going to be there. Uh, in other words, what's the likelihood that say, the president picks somebody else and he or she scuttles what uh, Chair Yellen has decided to implement or, or telegraphed here? Uh, do you think that we're well on our way or that stands a chance of changing? I think of it more as risk factor. So you can, I guess the simple way to conceptualize it is to say that balance sheet normalization is just another form of tightening. It just happens through the long end rather than the short end. And if this new uh, Fed chair thinks that the U.S. economy requires more tightening, uh, they might prefer to do it through faster balance sheet runoff simply because they think that the balance sheet needs to be smaller. So I think there is an issue around sort of tactics and and, and the way that policy is is tightened and and that will be a function of who's in that seat next year. What did you hear from the the Fed chair in Cleveland uh, last week? She delivered this speech on uh, inflation. Uh, there was some introspection to it, uh, talked about the way the Fed forecasts and, and about the Fed's outlook. Did you hear something different there, a change in tone or, or a, uh, a a willingness to engage with some of the criticism of the Fed's uh, forecasting for one? I, I think she's a fairly transparent Fed chair in the sense that she lays out her model and she acknowledges when that model is failing. And what I thought was interesting about the debate is just how, how, how true to that nature she's been. And she's, she's admitted that the, the Fed doesn't have a lot of confidence in the, in the uh, inflation outlook, and these models are not delivering the expected outcomes, particularly on, yeah. on wages. Well, that goes to the desire for hard data. Mm. I, saw, I think Zero Hedge had a great chart out last night showing this, the, 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 the separation here between moods and emotion and beliefs and hard data. And I, I believe other economists have said we really need to get a data point that says there's inflation out there. To be clear, we haven't seen that data point yet, right? I th- correct. What, what you've seen is some uh, rise in inflation over the past couple of years, but from extremely low levels into, to low, into low. rates that are still yeah. super low. So I, th- I think it is legitimate to say that the Fed can afford to be patient given that the starting point for inflation is so low. I, I don't know that that would be there's I don't think that would be the same message if they were already at their target. Do they need a single whisper of inflation to act in December or critically to act in the next decision after December? I think because the the uh, level of rates is still extremely low. They the bar is is, is also low for a hike in December. Right. Meaning they just see normal CPI prints, which are something like 0.2% increases month on month. That's all they need to to feel like 
the, the yeah. data are generally moving in their direction, even if it's not moving yeah. quickly. You see my strategy here, David? I'm asking John Norman all the questions Stanley Fisher won't answer. So I <laughs> playing, get, playing limbo get, get as my, the bar is lower. Get my <laughs> anger out of the way before I meet with the vice chairman. Uh, we got this tax reform proposal last week. I'm eager to get your thoughts on, on what that means for, for the economy generally. We were talking with uh, someone from the Tax Policy Center yesterday about the difficulty of, of forecasting out what it means given how little we have at this point. And do we have more than we had in the past? We went from two pages to, to nine mm-hmm. pages here. But what's your sense from what you've read of it, of what difference it might make and, and, and how pivotal a moment this is? We have the administration. We have Republican members of Congress saying it's an achievement just to have this on paper uh, and a commitment from, from Republican lawmakers, at least, to engage with tax reform. Mm-hmm. Are we at a pivotal moment when it comes to, to, to tax reform, do you think? And, and uh, what role do you see it playing here in, in economic growth? I think you're at a moment where there's a opportunity to transform the economy. I, it's a different question whether you think policymakers will actually do something material with that opportunity. So there's there's two issues here around tax. One is tax cuts and the other is tax reform. And and Reagan, who was sort of the acolyte for both of those movements, uh, combined both the, the cuts and the rationalization of the tax system, and the result was a, a boom in the, in the U.S. economy. And so people use that as a template for – how good things could get without maybe realizing that what was proposed last week was simply tax cuts, not not reform. No, there was no discussion around what deductions or exemptions would be uh, altered in order to both finance the tax cuts and, and also redistribute capital across the U.S. economy. So it, it seems to me they're going for kind of half of what they should go for. And unfortunately, given the philosophical divide in the, the House and Senate, um, that uh, – they're not going to be able to square the circle in, towards, in terms of getting through even the ambitious tax cuts because the financing element is missing. So what's Kasman and company say? It's not going to, did I just hear you say you don't think it's going to happen? We don't think it's going to happen nearly on the scale that was proposed last week. So okay. the, the forecast from the economics team, which is Bruce, Bruce Kasman, Kasman and Mike Fivoli, yeah, sure, is that sure. you'll get maybe $100 billion of, of tax yeah. cuts. So a, a trillion over a year, that's maybe going to add a yeah. quarter point to GDP. That's, what we, that's why we don't consider right. that material. I, I think doubling that right. quantum would be material because it infe- <clears throat> impacts your Fed view. And we like to give historical perspective here, David Gura. Mr. Faroli wrote original research on the decline in potential GDP umpteen years ago for J.P. Morgan, and people said, Michael, really, have, have a cup of coffee, Michael. I mean, come on. He, he got a personal visit from James Diamond, and Diamond was so upset. And Michael was dead on, right? I mean, just stunningly dead on about the lessening of nominal and real GDP as measured by potential GDP. Does this have any uh, market influence on the dollar, just the discussion about tax policy and what may or may not happen here? Absolutely, because there's if, – if you get material tax cuts, meaning something that lifts the economy more than half a point, I think it's a slam dunk that you're getting the Fed hiking in December and three times next year. And you may even get more than that. So the the Fed, I think, when it gave that guidance on rates, wasn't factoring in anything meaningful from Washington because it was still early days. So their thinking on the appropriate policy setting would change if the the, the fiscal response out of the Trump administration changed as well. That is going to be a big influence on the dollar because it it means that the the Fed is going to be hiking more than anybody else. You know, right now we have kind of a a short-term positive view, medium-term negative view on the dollar because we just think that as the Fed moves, other central banks are going to be in that mix as well. But if you got a lot of fiscal stimulus out of the states, it would be the Fed leading the pack, and that to me is dollar bullish. News to you, Tom? No? Yeah. I, I I, I, I put it out on Twitter. 
earlier. I think these are you know important conversations. We're going to come back with John Norman, a good briefing here at the beginning of the fourth quarter. I don't know where the year went, David. I'm That's putting true. you in charge of that as well. <laughs> we'll come back with John Norman of J.P. Morgan and find other themes to speak about, particularly in the Maybe we'll do it. Should we do a little like a more CFA block or well, state general? I'll let you decide. <laughs> you, know, you know where I'll fall on that one. John Norman, great to have you with us here again. John Norman, head of currencies, commodities, and uh, international rates research at JP Morgan, uh, here with us uh, in New York, uh, removed from his base uh, in, in London. Let's talk a bit about Brexit and what you've been observing there when it comes to currencies, the effect that the Brexit process has had on the pound and, and the euro, and um, where you see clarity. We, we follow the, the, the parlor game and the back and forth and the uh, infighting among this, the, the government in, in the UK. What are you listening for? Do you, do, you, do you have some optimism here that the issue of trade in particular is going to be hammered out here, that we're seeing progress being made in Brussels? I, I am optimistic that the current UK government understands that there is no such thing as free market access without accepting some restrictions on, on labor, labor mobility. And because they're coming to that realization, or they've come to that realization, they've agreed this, or they propose this two-year transitional period, which means you don't have this very abrupt change in the operating environment for, for corporates when March 2019 rolls around. So that's the good news around Brexit. They seem to be going soft and, and, and sort of walking back from these originally very strident uh, demands that they were making of the, of the Europeans. So that's good for the economy, positive for sterling if it's um, a, enough certainty to get the economy to improve and the Bank of England to, to lift rates. That's kind of the, you know, the, the potted view on it. I guess the, the issue is, despite this um, uh, reduction in policy uncertainty, you still have an economy that looks pretty uneven. And you've got almost every economy in the G10 looking pretty perky. This is why I think it's a little bit heroic to get that bearish on rates in the UK or that bullish on sterling relative to some other bond markets or other currency markets. Do you see a bull trend with sterling in particular? Uh, I think trend, if you're in point on this, is two years from now. Okay. I don't think trend, if you're in point on this, is three months from now. Within this is, I guess, the Mathian theory and why people, John, are riveted to your research at J.P. Morgan. It's minute detail, folks. It's really pro-adult. Don't read this at home. And the pro-research is centered around vectors or physics dynamics that are smooth and have this thing that we call a glide path versus abrupt stochastics or jump conditions, which is a shock, almost an exogenous outside shock. Are we in a system now, a, a fragility that brings us to jump conditions? Or do you have a confidence, as any public official would have, that, oh, we can maintain glide paths? I think if you look at current conditions, you should feel pretty comfortable with the volatility environment because you have stable growth in almost every country of the best performance on a global basis in, in two or three years. You have rate normalization at a super slow pace, and you don't have much inflation to get central banks to pick up the pace. I, I guess where you should be worried is just recognizing that these uh, ideal conditions are not permanent. They've never been permanent in any business cycle. And the older the business cycle gets, the more the underlying fragilities build, either too much debt in some part of the economy mm -hmm. or or too much inflation pressure. And so that's kind of what you have to be on guard for over the next couple of years, that the inflation pressures at some point uh, emerge. This causes central banks to quicken the pace of tightening, and that causes corporates in particular to... Right. to uh, reduce their activity because corporates are the, the leveraged sector in the global economy right now, or U.S. corporates are. Within that is Newtonian mechanics of a rate of change and a rate of change of the rate of change of inflation. To be clear, we don't even have the series increasing. 
I mean, forget about the first or second derivatives. We don't have the thing inflation mm-hmm. going up, right? Correct. It's it's very modest uh, rates of change. So there's nothing to worry about there, but that doesn't mean there's no underlying imbalance in the economy. If you if you, I think the only reason people are comfortable with low inflation is because no central bank has an objective to wa- to watch asset prices. So if you if you kind of widen the lens and think about what prices have responded to the easy money environment, it's it's asset prices, and people have a lot of concerns about valuations and whether or not what's embedded into equities for earnings growth is really going to be delivered, whether or not the low level of interest rates is consistent with how inflation might be in two or three years' time. So it's only because you know central bankers have a very narrow focus yeah. that people are kind of content right now. One final question very quickly. What do you watch as your key inflation indicator? Mm-hmm. Is it five-year, five years? Is it some other mystical chemistry off the Bloomberg? What's the thing you watch? It, it's no one thing. It's a few things. Oh, yeah, so. I know. Come on. You sound like a derivatives guy. <laughs> What's the one thing that you look at? To me, the most important part of the puzzle, puzzle is wages. Wage is interesting. Because that's the, the, the part of the of the framework that we should be most concerned about when labor markets are tight and they're not moving. Okay, that's so a I terrific don't. insight, folks. One of the giants of derivative and economics and placing it into tactical investments tells you, you got to go back to core economics to find out where we go. John Norman, thank you so much with J.P. Morgan Chase. This is Bloomberg. and Tom Keen here in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. In just a few moments, Richard Smith is going to make a long, lonely walk through the marble corridors of the Rayburn House office building. He's going to testify a little bit later today before the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce's subcommittee on digital commerce and consumer protection. He was until very recently the chairman and CEO of Equifax, of course, that company involved in a massive data breach, more than 140 million Americans affected by that particular breach. The ranking member of that subcommittee is Jan Schakowsky. She represents the 9th Congressional District of Illinois in the U.S. House of Representatives. And it's great to have her with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance on our phone line. And so I said, great to have you with us here. I'm looking at the prepared testimony that Mr. Smith is scheduled to give. Paragraph number two, uh, he apologizes for, for what happens. What do you uh, hope to hear from Mr. Smith today when he testifies before your subcommittee? Well, we're going to hear apologies all over the place. One, for what happened, and two, because they so mangled the the response to that. It was so um, incompetent and uh, actually dangerous. They sent uh, some of the consumers to a phishing site um, where more of their data could even be uh, extracted. Um, and, and the uh, phone lines that were totally inadequate. People couldn't get through. So we're going to hear a lot of apologies. But the other thing that we're, I think will be impossible for uh, Mr. Smith to tell us is what's going to happen going forward, because he was really forced to resign from the, uh, the company. Um, and so what we want to know is actually how our consumers, the 145 million consumers, they add up the number, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, that have had their 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 data breached, um, and you know I think what this all points out is that these credit uh, reporting agencies are are seriously unregulated. These are you know Equifax trades on the uh, on the stock exchange. This is a for-profit private company, and without our permission, um, without many consumers' knowledge, they know just about everything about us, enough that 
you can't you can't function in this uh, in this world anymore without giving without their having that information. If you want a credit card, if you want a mortgage, if you want to rent an apartment, or even get a job. You, they have the information that's going to um, ab- about you that all of these people are going to have, um, and so you know we we want to um, look forward to what are we going to do to add the protections that we need yep. in order to make sure that these things don't happen. And by the way, this is the third major breach at Equifax in the last two years. And so, uh, you know, they have, they have a lot to uh, apologize for and a lot of fixing to do. From where you sit, you, you look at a lot of breaches like this, and, and something of concern I imagine to you is the delay between when the company found out about it and when Americans learned about it. How do you shorten that period of time? What, what can Congress do to make uh, the, the, the notification process more immediate? Well, actually, I've introduced a bill this week in advance of this hearing, reintroduced, I should say, Secure and Protect Americans data, and it does three things. One, it would create strong data um, security standards. We don't really have those kinds of universal standards. It would require prompt breach notification, and it would provide relief for victims. And by the way, you know, even the city of Chicago now has sued Equifax and attorneys general around the country are looking at it, investigating, as well as the FBI. You know, the, the, the space between their knowledge yeah. of, the, of the breach and actually informing consumers, that was a time when top management at Equifax um, made uh, it, it uh, sold over a million dollars in stock. That really yeah. smells bad. They thought, and, my, you know, they th- let me give you a reality, Congresswoman. They thought my do- my daughter was my wife at one point. You know, they get the they they get it all screwed up the day yeah, over no, the years. Tot- totally all totally yeah. all screwed up. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 what do you and what do you do about it? You know. Yeah. I, I think that there are a lot of Americans who, you know, woke up and thought, well, what, is, what is Equifax? What are these uh, reporting agencies? What, who, who are yeah. they? Why do they have all my information? And try and fix something that is wrong right. on one of these sites, and it's no. really hard to do. Congresswoman, as we've talked to you before, and we love speaking to you, you've been a huge supporter of what I'm going to call the Pelosi Democratic uh, Party. I don't know if you've done any couch time, as the president has with Senator Schumer and, and Speaker Pelosi, <laughs> but the prescription that you live every day in Chicago and in the Midwest is a prescription, a further progressive Democratic Party to 2018 and to 2000. 20, or do you have to take lessons learned from Wisconsin and other states and move more to the middle? Which will it be? You know what? I think showing up and being respectful and listening are things that are the lessons that I learned from the, the last campaign. Not about message, not about policy, but I think, you know, the cardinal sin of politics is disrespect. And when people feel that they're not heard, yeah. that their opinions are not considered, that's when you if, if if you if they feel you're disrespected, you can never win their vote. I think all Democrats need to do is go out and say, we are the party that will create the jobs, not just talk about them. We are the party that wants to protect ordinary consumers in a fair 
um, tax proposal and that we think that the, the, the wealthy, you know, we're seeing a tax proposal now where 80% is going to go to, of tax relief is going to go to the top 1%. Mm. Uh, um, and, and so I, I really think that Democrats just need to go and listen and talk to um, Americans all over this country. And I think that we can that we can win with that kind of yeah. very simple showing up strategy. What are what are your constituents telling you about this uh, tax reform proposal? Surely there are some who are, are are eager to or would like to see some changes to the tax code, see it simplified or changed. Uh, are they telling you they'd like to see you have a seat at the table? Uh, Republicans have at least uh, on paper extended an olive branch to Democrats to join them as they uh, work on this. Do you have any interest in, in that process whatsoever? Well, I mean, I think that we have to take a look at the at the real bill. We haven't seen one yet. We have these broad outlines that probably are just a a feast for lobbyists right now, mainly the lobbyists for uh, people that want to protect the uh, you know big business tax cuts. Um, so when we see a real proposal, then we can have a conversation right. a- about right. it. Okay, the only... I'm, I'm, I'm very open to a conversation about it, yeah. but I think what, what people feel is what we've been hearing. Um, and actually, uh, the president says it, too, that right. this is a rigged economy, and they're the losers. Yeah. Congresswoman, one more question. Is it true sure. you're, you're going to see Cubs Nationals Friday night in Washington, and then you're also going to see Cubs Nationals Wrigley Field on October 9th, Monday? Are you going to both games? I am. I am not going to be able to actually go to uh, the game. The game here. I'm going to be home on on Friday. I don't know about tickets on on Saturday. But you know what? We're going to be in the World Series again. Oh, oh, oh yeah! Optimism. Oh yeah! And oh, we're going to God. win. It's worse than talking to Bill Murray. Go away, go. Congresswoman. <laughs> thank you so much, Jan Chikowsky. Uh, this is north of Chicago. Yes, Evanston. It's, it's, right? It, can we just state that it's like arguably the most gorgeous architecture yeah. district? In America, it isn't like Evanston, and it's out to Park Ridge, where Secretary Clinton went to high school. Yeah, something like Glenview, that. Arlington Heights. Yeah, you know that. better yeah. than me. Okay, Jan Schakowsky, thank you. So, the ninth congressional district of the great state of Illinois. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.